You are listening to the Grace Church of Mapton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers John 4, 46 through 518. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Ryan, for reading our text. I wonder if you've ever reached a point of decision, a point of decision where you just have to make up your mind. You do your research, you think things through, and then you reach a point where, okay, time to decide. If you live long enough, you've probably had lots of points of decision along the way. Uh, Here's one that came to my mind from my own life that many years ago now, more than 20 years ago, uh, Susie and I were on a road trip and we were driving all the way up to Alaska. So a long, a long road trip. And we had, this is back before the days of GPS. If you remember those old days with those things we call maps and we had maps and we were looking at the road and kind of planning out our trip and we could see that at a certain point up in British Columbia there was going to be an option for us. There was the main highway up to Alaska that kind of goes around one way and then there was another road called the Cassiar Highway which was about a hundred miles shorter. So one is like 550 miles through the stretch, the other is 450 miles. I mean this is the scale of things on you know driving to Alaska. Right, so we could save 100 miles, but also we could tell this is not the main road. This is going to be a little more remote. There'll be a few less towns, less gas stations, and there already weren't very many. And so we're trying to decide, well, which path, which road, which route will we take? And so we had hundreds of miles driving along to think about which route we were going to take. But eventually we reached a point where it was time to decide. We get to that why in the road, and we have to pick which path we're going to take, which, which road. And we chose the Cassiar Highway, and that's the path we took. We'll come back to that a little later. But as we continue working our way through the Gospel of John here, we are learning more and more about Jesus. We're seeing more of his miracles that he's doing, the conversations he's having with people, how people are responding. And all along the way, the whole point of John, we've been saying the theme of the book is believe. Believe, And there's this constant confrontation with, with the question, will you believe in Jesus? Will you follow him and believe in him? And last week or last couple weeks, we saw Jesus was in Samaria. And while he was in Samaria, he talked with the Samaritan woman. She believed and then many Samaritans believed in Jesus. And, and it was all good news. Samaria, here's a, Samaria is like a field ready to be harvested. People are ready to believe But then at the end of that story, in chapter 4, in in verse 44, we get kind of an ominous little statement, a hint of what's to come, that Jesus has been, this is verse 44 of chapter 4, that Jesus has been testifying that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. When he's in this foreign place, Samaria, people believe in Jesus. But what about the people in Galilee where Jesus grew up and that's where he's been traveling to and where he arrives in our text today? What about the Jews down in Jerusalem and Judea, his own people? Well, we'll see in our text today that the more people learn about Jesus and the more of these miracles he does, the more people are pushed into this point of decision. Believe in Jesus or reject Jesus. And we'll see today that not everyone believes in Jesus. And something similar is true for us today that we also, as we learn about Jesus, we reach a point of decision. Will I believe in Jesus? Will you believe 
in Jesus. It requires a decision. So here's our outline for today. This is in your bulletin if you have that. If you want to follow along with the outline, take notes and so on. Uh, Also up here on the screen. First we'll see, we have two stories, two miracles here. In the first one we'll see Jesus heal a sick child and we'll see how that results in belief. Then the second one we'll see Jesus heal a lame man and we'll see this actually results in unbelief. People reject Jesus And that will lead us into our third point, that Jesus demonstrates all of this authority. And we'll see how people uh, respond and react to that by rejecting Jesus. And so this is what we'll talk about as we work through the text. And as we do, we should all be asking of ourselves, do I believe in Jesus? What's my decision about Jesus? So first, Jesus heals a sick child. This is chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. If you remember in chapter 4, Jesus, he's been on this journey. He was going from Judea, traveling north up to Galilee. He went through Samaria. Now he arrives in Galilee. And we're told in verse 46 that he comes to the town of Cana, which happens to be where he turned water into wine back in chapter 2. And we're told in verse 46 that there is an official whose son was ill. This is a high-ranking person. It's Somebody who's connected closely with royalty. Probably he worked very closely with the king in that region. And this man, this very important man, his son is sick. And not just sick, his son is near death. And so this is a father who is desperate. He's running out of options for his son. And, And word has been traveling around that Jesus does these miracles. And so this father, in his desperation, he travels to Jesus from Capernaum to Cana. It's a a journey of about 25 miles or so he travels to get to Jesus. And in verse 47, he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus to come to his home, travel back with me to my house and heal my son. This This is an urgent situation, a desperate situation for him. But Jesus, this is kind of classic Jesus, the way he responds to people. Jesus doesn't really get the urgency here. He replies in verse 48 with almost like an an aloofness, like Jesus' head is off in the clouds somewhere, looking at some kind of big picture and kind of missing what's going on. He he says in verse 48, unless you, and, and this is plural, you, unless all of you, unless you people, See signs and wonders you will not believe. You guys just want to see miracles, 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 miracles. And so you can imagine if you're this official, this father, say, I, I mean, who cares what everybody else is thinking? There's only one thing on his mind. His son is dying. And so in verse 49, he pleads with Jesus. We can talk about the theory of miracles and how they ought to work and why don't people... We can talk about that some other time. Sir, come down before my child dies, he pleads in verse 49. And now Jesus speaks directly to him in verse 50. Go, your son will live. Jesus does care about this sick boy after all. And now Jesus demonstrates his authority. I don't need to go to the child. I don't have to go 25 miles out of my way to be present with him to heal him. I'll just say the word right here. 
and your son will live. And the official responds by believing Jesus' words. This is remarkable, his, his trust, his belief here. He turns around and heads home without Jesus, but confident that his son will be healed because Jesus has said the word. And on his way home, he meets his servants. His servants are racing to him. They meet halfway, and his servants want to tell him the good news. His son is getting better. And the official asks, well, when? What time did he get better? And they say, oh, it was at the seventh hour, seven hours after sunrise, something like 1 p.m. That's when the fever went down. And this official immediately knows that was the exact time when Jesus said, your son will live. That's all the confirmation he needs. He knows this wasn't coincidence. His son was healed by Jesus. And as a result of this, in the end of verse 53, not only this official now, but his entire household believes in Jesus. His son who is healed believes in Jesus. His servants who ran to tell him the good news, they believe in Jesus. They've all seen with their own eyes what Jesus did in healing this boy. And they all believe. They respond like the Samaritans do. The right way. Yes, Jesus really is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. Yes, we will trust him. Yes, we will follow him as his disciples and learn to walk in his ways. So that's our first story. A, a great miracle from Jesus. And as a result, a whole household believes. And that then takes us to our second story, where Jesus heals a lame man. <coughs> this is our second point now. Jesus heals a lame man now in chapter 5. So chapter 5 begins with a little statement, Jesus had gone back to Jerusalem. He's been back on the road again, back down through Samaria. He's traveled several days. He arrives in Jerusalem, and there's a feast going on in Jerusalem at this time. Lots of people have come into Jerusalem whenever there's a feast. And in Jerusalem, we're told, there's a pool of water there called Bethesda. And we have a description in verse 2 that it's, it is a pool that has five roofed colonnades. And so archaeologists, they've actually found this pool in Jerusalem, and they've kind of figured out or reconstructed what probably this pool looked like in Jesus' day. So I have a picture here. This is an artist kind of drawing what it probably would have looked like. And if you look closely, you can see there were actually two pools of water. There was an upper pool and a lower pool. And if you, I don't know if you can see real well, but in the lower pool, there would have been stairs, or in both of them, I guess, have stairs, but the lower pool has these stairs. And so the lower pool is where people would have hung out at the lower pool. And the upper pool, they think, was used as like a reservoir. They had water, extra water there that they could release down into the lower pool when they needed it. And if you notice, there's a colonnade, a row of columns around the outside, four walls, and then dividing the pools, there's a fifth colonnade there. Do you see that? And so that's the description that we have in the text that it had five colonnades, five rows of columns. And then this pool, they think, was actually fed by a spring of water, and they suspect it was an intermittent spring. In other words, sometimes it produced water, and other times it didn't produce water. Like, I don't, I don't know if Old Faithful is a good example of that, or something of that nature, but 
you know, water would come and then it wouldn't come into the pool. The water that did come into the pool the, uh, from other sources of history was, they think was red in color, probably had high levels of iron in it. And if ever there was a shortage of water, they could add some more water from the upper reservoir. And so sometimes you put all that together, and what that means is sometimes this pool of water was still and calm, just a body of water sitting there. But other times when the spring was active, there'd be water coming in, red water perhaps, and the pool would be stirred about. The water would be moving. And there was kind of a tradition that had developed uh, among the people at that time that when the water moved like this, it was actually an angel that had come and was stirring the waters, and that the first person to get into the water when it was moving would be healed. And so as a result of this, there were a number of sick people who would gather around this pool and wait for the waters to be stirred and then try to be the first one into the pool. So all that's why when we get to our text here in verse 3, we're told that there was a multitude of invalids laying around the pool. <laughs> These were blind people, lame people, paralyzed, all of them with the same hope. They want to be healed. Well, along comes Jesus. He looks over this crowd of sick people, and he picks out one gentleman, an invalid, who can't walk, who's been at the pool for a long time. <coughs> now, <clears throat> this is where the story begins to be a little bit different than the story of the official son's healing, if we look closely at the details. Notice in this story, this sick man does not ask Jesus to heal him. He doesn't approach Jesus and say, sir, make me well. Instead, Jesus picks him out, approaches him, and asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Now, we know Jesus is a healer. We know he's offering, you know, when he says, hey, do you want to be healed? We know what Jesus has in mind. He's, he's offering to heal this man. But this man has no idea who Jesus is. He thinks Jesus has just asked him the most, obvious, the most obvious question in the world. Do you want to be healed? Well, of course I want to be healed. Why else would I be here at this pool? And so in verse 7, the man says, of course I want to be healed, but here's my problem. When the pool is stirred, I can't walk, and I don't have anyone to help me into the pool so someone else always beats me in. That's why I haven't been healed. It's almost as if he thinks what Jesus is offering is, hey, I can hang out with you and help you into the water when the time comes. Perhaps that's what he expected from Jesus. But instead, Jesus says in response to him in verse 8, get up, take up your yoga mat. <laughs> the kids, take up your bed. Yeah, you with me? Yoga mat, remember? Do you remember like 10 minutes ago when we talked about yoga mats? Okay. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus speaks the word to him. Forget the pool. Take the pool out of the picture. That's, that has nothing to do with your healing, Jesus says. I'm going to say it. Just get up and walk. And verse 9 says, At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. 38 years He's been unable to walk. Jesus looks at him and says, I'll say the word, and you start walking. Now, this is the point in the story 
where we would expect to read that this man then believed in Jesus. It's decision time for him. Jesus has shown his authority, shown his power, shown his love and his care. And now, will you believe in Jesus? If you think of the story of that official, Jesus says the word and the official believes. His household sees the healing. They believe. This invalid man, he's 38 years unable to walk. Now the word of Jesus, and he's up and walking. Will he believe in Jesus? And what about all the other Jews in Jerusalem who see this miracle and the result of this miracle? Will they believe in Jesus? Well, this takes us to our third point where we begin to see how they respond. We're going to see that Jesus demonstrates his absolute authority, but in response, the people reject Jesus and choose not to believe. So this is our third point now, that Jesus has all authority. And we're looking at verses 10 through 18 and what happens after this healing. So in these, in these verses, verses 10 through 18, our third point, a controversy now erupts about the Sabbath. And so they're going to debate about the Sabbath. But underlying this debate about the Sabbath, the real question, the real issue here is that these people have been pushed into a point of decision about Jesus and they're choosing not to believe in him. But, but the Sabbath is kind of on the surface of what the debate is about. So we're told in the end of verse 9 that the, the, the day was the Sabbath. The day of this healing was the Sabbath day. And, and so the Sabbath, maybe, maybe you would remember, this comes from the Old Testament. The Sabbath was something God commanded in his law, where God commanded his people, the Jews, not to work on the seventh day. You work six days, the law says, And on the seventh day, you take a break from your normal labors and you spend your seventh day resting from work and remembering God and worshiping God. And so when did Jesus heal this man? Well, he healed him on the Sabbath. And so in verse 10, this becomes a problem. But if you look closely, it's initially it's a problem, not for Jesus, but for the man who was healed. Some Jews see him walking through Jerusalem And what is he carrying through Jerusalem? He's carrying his bed. And verse 10, they say to him, it's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You are breaking the law, they say to him. Now, at this time in history, the Jewish people, they had developed their own rules, their own traditions for what exactly you could or could not do on the Sabbath. They had really gotten very serious about this idea that you don't work on the Sabbath. They'd kind of forgotten the whole, like, remember God and that part of the Sabbath, but real serious about not working. And so they created, well, then what constitutes work? And how do we know if we're working or not? And so they came up with all these different rules. And one of their rules was that you could not carry an object from one place to another. If you carried an object, if you moved an object on the Sabbath, it was work. It would be breaking the Sabbath. And so if you think about Jerusalem, all these people in Jerusalem, all these Jewish people, it's the Sabbath. People walking around Jerusalem, but guess what none of them would have been doing? Carrying something. And so here comes this guy walking through the crowd, carrying his bed. He would have stood out on the Sabbath. And so they come and they confront him. 
Now, if you, if you think about this, if, if you were in Jerusalem, I mean, you, would, you would think that, that these people would come, and when they see a man who's been lame for 38 years, now walking, carrying his bed on the Sabbath, what, what question do you think maybe you ought to ask? How is it that you're able to walk? Like something has happened here. But, but they are so preoccupied with the Sabbath. They can't see the miracle that's right in front of you. You're breaking the law. You're carrying your bed. Their preoccupation with the Sabbath, their, their disinterest in the miracle already is, is showing that they're not ready to believe in Jesus. Well, well, the man now, he's been accused of breaking the law. This man has been healed. And he responds by technically speaking the truth, but also kind of blaming Jesus a little bit. In verse 11, he says, well, it was the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's not my fault. Jesus made me do it. He told me to break the law. And again, you notice in verse 12, these Jews don't ask, who is this man that healed you? They ask, who is this guy who told you to break the law, to carry your bed on the Sabbath? And verse 13, the healed man doesn't know who healed him. Jesus just showed up, healed him, and then disappeared into the crowd. And so if you kind of follow along with the story here, this man's been healed, which is pretty incredible, and yet he seems kind of like he's just not quite getting it. Someone healed you after 38 years and you didn't bother to figure out who did it? You, you took the healing from Jesus and you didn't bother to think about the implications of who this might be? Perhaps to think about, I don't know, maybe believing in him? Nope, I got the healing. Jesus went his way. I went my way. He's off in the wind somewhere into the crowd. Well, then in verse 14, Jesus tracks this man down a second time. He finds him in the temple now, and Jesus gives him a strong command here, a, a rebuke almost. In verse 14, Jesus says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Ooh, that's almost a threat, isn't it? That's, that's a strong warning. Sin no more. Something worse will happen to you. It's a wake-up call from Jesus. A warning of judgment from Jesus. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, and in most of, if not all of our stories, Jesus has had this positive message for people. Believe in me and you'll have new life. You'll be born again. Your sins will be forgiven. I'll give you living water. You'll be my disciple. You'll have eternal life if you believe in me. Wonderful invitations from Jesus. Now, with this man, Jesus is giving the same message in a way, but kind of from the opposite perspective. If you don't believe in me, if you continue living in your old ways, if you continue living in sin, disobeying me, rejecting me, then take warning, Jesus says, that something worse is coming your way, something far worse than even being unable 
to walk for 38 years. What's he hinting at? Well, if we go back to John 3.17, John, in, in the a chapter, a couple chapters earlier, was spelled out for us. Whoever does not believe in Jesus, this is John 3.17, whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. You won't perish. You have everlasting life, John 3.16. John 3.17, you don't believe in Jesus, you're condemned. You'll perish. Wake up, Jesus says to him. Connect the dots. I showed up in your life. I healed you so you could walk. You're supposed to believe in me. But what does it seem like is the result for this man. The text never says he believed in Jesus. It seems as if he doesn't believe in Jesus. And so here comes the warning from Jesus. Connect the dots. Stop your sin. Follow me. Believe in me. Or there's condemnation for you. Okay, so how does this man respond now? Jesus is Found him out a second time, thrown these strong words at him. Well, in verse 15, he responds by ratting Jesus out. He goes straight to those Jews and says, the guy's name is Jesus. That's the guy you're looking for. And in verse 16, this then, this whole story, this incident becomes the reason why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. That's verse 16. Why they're persecuting Jesus? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And this now starts what will become a theme throughout the Gospel of John of this opposition to Jesus that's, that's actually persecution that grows more and more intense against Jesus. And it begins here in these verses because of the Sabbath. And it's almost, it's almost silly to think about. I mean, think about what Jesus is doing here. Healing an official son with his words 25 miles away Walking up to a lame man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years and healing him. And these Jews in Jerusalem are going to oppose him, persecute him even, all because he does these things on the wrong day of the week, on the Sabbath. But from their perspective, where did the Sabbath law come from? Well, it came from God. This is God's laws not man's laws. So anybody who comes from God, if Jesus genuinely is from God, what should he be doing? Well, keeping God's laws, keeping the Sabbath. If he violates the Sabbath, that's all the proof they need. He's not from God. doesn't matter what miracles he does. These healings, well, yeah, they're kind of cool, but they're not impressive enough to overcome the problem that in their minds, Jesus is first and foremost a lawbreaker, breaking God's laws. So what do we make of this? Is Jesus a lawbreaker then? Did he come from God and then violate God's laws? Should we not believe in him? Or is he from God? Well, Jesus gives them an explanation in verse 17. And this is, this is Jesus in his brilliance here. Okay, a one-sentence explanation. Verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, how does that answer the question, this problem of the Sabbath? Well, here's what Jesus is doing. 
among the Jews, there was actually a debate, like a theology debate, about whether or not God himself works on the Sabbath. Okay, so now think, I mean, I don't know if you care about these kinds of questions. This is the stuff they cared about. Okay, God tells all people to work, or to not work on the Sabbath. But what about God himself? Does God work on the Sabbath, or does God take the Sabbath off from work? And what constitutes work for God on the Sabbath? And they concluded that, well, God must do some kind of work on the Sabbath because God is the one, after all, who sustains the universe, who gives us life. If God just took today off from work, we would all cease to exist. So he must do some kind of work on the Sabbath. And they had other ways of thinking about this, too. Well, can God move things then from one place to another? And they decided, well, yeah, because it really everything is in God's presence. So it's not like it actually went from one place to another if he moves things. It's like it's all still in his house, kind of. Well, can he lift things over his head? We're not supposed to lift things over our head on the Sabbath. Well, God's stature is so tall, he can lift things a long ways and it never gets over his head. So they had all these ways of saying, God's kind of the exception to the laws of the Sabbath. The Sabbath laws don't really apply to God in the same way. He gives those laws to us, but he still works in some way on the Sabbath. So if human beings absolutely under the law, under the Sabbath law, don't work on the Sabbath. God, different category, kind of above the law. He actually does work on the Sabbath. And so what does Jesus say? What's his response? My father, what does he do? He works all the way up until now, including on the Sabbath. And so what do I do? I'm working, Jesus says. And he's saying, here's your mistake you're making about me. You expect me not to work on the Sabbath as if I am a human being just like any other human under the law. But actually, Jesus says, I'm not, in this case, for the Sabbath purposes, I'm not in the category of human being. I'm in the category of God. I'm the son of God. I do what the Father does. The standards that apply to God the Father apply to me. So if he works on the Sabbath, I work on the Sabbath too. Now that's quite the answer, isn't it? And now you can imagine what kind of reaction would an answer like that have from the Jewish people. I mean, come on, Jesus. I mean, we could have understood if Jesus said something like, hey guys, healing isn't really work. I just spoke words. I didn't actually do anything. Jesus could have made that argument. He could have made the argument, you know, you guys are so picky. Carrying your mat home, that's not really work on the Sabbath. You guys are just too narrow, too strict. He could have, just could have debated like that. But instead, Jesus says, I'm going to make a different kind of argument. I am the Son of God. I am equal with the Father. I have all authority like the Father does over the law and over the Sabbath so I work on the Sabbath. So how do the Jews respond to Jesus? After he says this, in verse 18, they oppose Jesus all the more, even seeking to kill him. Because he's not just violating the Sabbath, but what is he doing now? He's blaspheming. 
calling God his Father, making himself equal with God, the audacity of this guy. It's a capital offense worthy of the death penalty. Who comes along and says, I and God are in the same category, and I do what God does? So they understand. They understand exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. They understand what he is doing, the miracles he's doing. They understand who he is identifying himself as, the Son of God, come with all the authority of God. And now these folks reach their point of decision. They understand, but they reject Jesus. They don't believe. So we have two stories of healing. The official's son is healed, and the entire household believes in Jesus. The invalid man is healed, and no one believes in Jesus. It seems as if even the healed man himself does not believe in Jesus. And instead they oppose Jesus and begin seeking to kill him. And these two stories, when we put them together, they, they show that there, there's this point of decision that everyone who comes near Jesus, who looks at what he does and what he says, eventually is forced into this position of making a decision. Will you believe in Jesus or not? Either he is who he claims to be or he's not. Either he is the son of God or he's not. Either he's equal with God, or he's not. He's a liar. Either he has come to bring life to the world, or he is not. Either he gives us new life and hope and joy, or he does not. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he has done these things, then we should believe in him. Absolutely. No questions asked. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's equal with God. He gave his life for our sins. He's raised from the dead. He gives us new life. Hallelujah. Believe in Jesus. If Jesus is not who he says he is, as these Jews in Jerusalem have concluded, then what is Jesus? He's a lawbreaker. He's a villain. He's a liar. He's a scoundrel. Reject him. He has nothing to offer. And it becomes one or the other. Is he the son of God? Or is he not? Will you believe in him? Or will you not believe in him? At the beginning of our message, I told you we were heading to Alaska and we reached our point of decision. And we chose the Cassiar Highway. And I think it was the right, the right choice for us, primarily because now it gives us a story to tell. Okay, we saved about 100 miles, but we drove about 50 miles down the Cassiar Highway when the road turned to gravel. And so we start driving on gravel wondering, I wonder when the pavement's going to come back. And as far as I can recall, it was about 300 miles later that the pavement came back. Now I read that they've paved most of that road, so if you want to have that experience, tough luck, you missed your chance. But at that point, we drove on gravel for mile after mile after mile. Probably should have stayed on the main highway. Probably there's a reason why it was the main highway. 
But the good news in that situation is that even though maybe we kind of made the wrong choice, both paths ultimately led us to our destination. There was a better option and there was maybe a less better option, but both paths worked. But not so with Jesus. Here the stakes are much higher. There's a right decision and a wrong decision. It truly is life or death, everlasting life or perishing. Remember John 3.16, those who believe in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life, but whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned and will perish. No wonder Jesus seeks out the man a second time. Take warning if you didn't believe in me. It's a point of decision. Will you believe in Jesus or not? And so may we all be like the first story, the official and his household, believing in Jesus, receiving his forgiveness of sins, the blessings he gives. And may we all share in his eternal life. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at gracechurchofmabton.org.